Hey, what's up, everybody? And welcome to Museo Punks, the podcast for the Progressive Museum. Uh, my name is Jeff, and I'm here as always with my awesome co-host, who I am looking at through the intertubes, Suze Cans. Hey, Suze, what's going on? Hey, hey! It's so amazing to be doing this and seeing you while we're chatting. I think our our switch to a, a new platform for recording this has been a good one. Yeah, I think so too. Um, it's nice to always kind of look uh, at the other person and have a kind of human conversation with them. Definitely. <laughs> I don't and know yet, what I meant. By, I don't I mean, know what I meant by that. But <laughs> no, no, no. But it, there's definitely a difference when you're having. When you can see someone talking and when you're trying to work out whether someone's pauses are because they've finished thinking or because they're just, you know, they're done. Yeah, definitely. So um, we have a huge show this week. And um, right. I, I think listeners, they may have had enough of us on the last episode. Um, yeah, I think we dive straight into these interviews. So uh, we got some cool, cool guests and some fascinating topics. We're tackling um, the idea, the concept of acquiring born digital objects um, with the Cooper guys from uh, Cooper Hewitt. Uh, and also we are um, talking with uh, Dale Cronkite from uh, the George O'Keefe Museum about how do we take care of this stuff, right? Right. Let's kick into some introductions for Seb Chan and Aaron Cope, who are our first two guests today on the show. Yeah, so uh, any, you must be living under a rock if you, if you don't know who these guys are, but um, Seb is currently the director of Digital and Emerging Media at the Smithsonian Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum. Um, and folks might know that prior to joining Cooper Hewitt, he uh, led the Digital, Social, and Emerging Technologies Department at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney. Uh, he's helped uh, organizations and institutions all over the world strategize and implement cutting-edge technologies in the cultural sector. And one of my favorite places to go online to check out um, cool stuff that's happening in the museum and technology and, and hashtag MuseTech uh, space is Seb's blog, freshandnew.org. Meanwhile, Seb's fantastic uh co-worker in this space is Aaron Cope and he's currently senior engineer at the Smithsonian Institution's Cooper Hewitt. Before that he was senior engineer at Flickr where he focused on all things geo, machine tag and galleries related between 2004 and 2009. Now Aaron also blogs at This Is Aaron Land and he makes bold 140 character executive poetry on Twitter similarly at This Is Aaron Land and he is happiest in the presence of olive oil. Aren't we all? On August 27, uh, the Cooper Hewitt uh, National Design Museum in New York announced that it had acquired Planetary, which is an iPad app, app, which was the museum's first acquisition of code. To kick off this discussion, Seb, can you tell us a little bit about the acquisition process? What exactly did the museum acquire? Uh, we acquired a piece of soft, uh, software and we acquired it as uh, source source code. Uh, we acquired it as versioned source code, meaning that you can see all of the changes between the first public release and the last 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 public release, which shows how the software changed throughout its life um, and in res- response to the changes both in the operating system that it ran on 
and the devices that it um, that it ran on and uh, user user feedback and bugs. So I think that, that that in itself was quite interesting. Also, I think um, what was interesting about it was when it when it when it was acquired, we acquired it uh, as an exam um, as an example rather than as a um, masterpiece. Um, whilst although it fits with the graphic and design collection, um, it is it is an example of how things were done at a particular period in time. Um, hmm. And I think that that that, op- that opens a lot of new opportunities for interpretation and exhibition. Aaron, um, uh, so there, I mean, there are apps developed every day, um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of apps. Um, what is it about Planetary um, that that piqued uh, Cooper Hewitt's interest, and 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 why specifically this app? Um, it was a combination of things. Principal among them was. Um, uh, well, I guess there's three pieces to it. One is, Seb mentioned the graphic design. Um, I mean, it really is kind of an exemplary piece of, of work. The work that Robert Hodgins did designing the planets, which are all based off of uh, individuals' music collections. So the planets are all generated dynamically. The position of the planets changes over time based on whether or not individual songs or albums are played. Um, and the other part was... You know, Bloom was a short-lived company, um, but when they started, they had this idea of creating um, sort of pop culture instruments for the data that everyone produces in their lives. Um, You know, everyone is creating this, like, ever-growing trail, and no one's quite sure how to make sense of it. Uh, You know, you you see it happening when you log into your bank account, and um, your account history or banking history is no longer just shown displayed as a list. It's displayed as uh, bar charts and, and visualizations. Um, and that's really the world that, that bloom came out of was how do we start to make sense of all this sort of amazing stuff? Um, and it, and it gets broken down into smaller and smaller tools. Seven, I did a talk the other week about this and, and it was right at the time when, there was yet another NSA story. And I think this was the one involving the French um, and they were being spied on sort of left, right and center. And, but that's important because you know what the, the, the screenshot that we used was the NSA had put up, well, they put up, they had uh, leaked (laughs) a document indicating all these sort of small bite sized tools for slicing and dicing the data that they're collecting in lots of different ways. And that was sort of the kind of thing that Bloom was trying to do. Um, and Planetary was the first of what they hoped to be many examples of that. Um, and I think they'll, you'll see a lot more of them uh, over time, whether it's Bloom or someone else. And then finally, it was the ability to work with the principals themselves. Mm. Um, and Tom Carden, who is the CTO, has agreed to sort of stick around and be the person who will vet what we hope will be pull requests. So taking the source code and making them run in other operation operating systems or other environments and using that as, that as a way to actually preserve those interactions that we were just talking about. Right. And I mean, this idea of interaction, I think, is really significant because one of the things when you 
wrote about planetary at the time of making the announcement. You called it a living object. Um, I suppose what I'm really interested in, though, and Aaron, I'll get you to keep talking to this, is is planetary an object or do we have to think of it in a completely different vocabulary? Um, it, it, it's not... I mean, rem- the thing to remember is that the, the Cooper Hewitt is a design museum. Mm. Um, we are not an art museum. We don't simply traffic in heroic instantiations of singular itches, right? I mean, we the things that make up our collection are meant to be produced, whether it's mass production or not. I mean, that's a, that's a separate issue. Um, mm. But there, you know, the, that ability for them to be one to solve a problem, mm-hmm. to solve a, a problem that can be identified and articulated, um, and two to actually be able to follow through with that, so that it's not just, mm. you know, a bespoke luxury good. Um, and so, in that way, software absolutely fits into our mandate, uh, both software design and and then things that. You know, you talk to anyone in the design world, um, and that are very real parts of what they do. Service design, interaction design, what, where are they? There's not necessarily any one thing you can hold in your hands. Um, so, yeah, planetary absolutely fits that mandate. And part of it is just trying to figure out what all of this means. Yeah, it's syst- I mean, it's systems and experiences, too. And I think this this is a thing coming from... Um, but the, my, my, my experiences at the powerhouse and with the powerhouse collection was that, you know, increasingly it's not just a design, but it is tech, technology collections or historical collections too that, you know, I think that there, there is a sense that a lot of their meaning is no longer just in the ob. I, I'm in the ob. I'm, I'm in the object itself, mm. and so you know, even good. Even good ex- exhibition pra- practice tries to get at that a bit, and I think part of what the planetary piece was about was about trying to almost force the the, the museum to address this issue and to address at um, at um, this moment of rebuilding itself to address what sort of museum it may need to be in the kind of future and what sort of museum it it. It may need to design exhibition halls and vitrines for, and 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 that's something that I think that that moment of re- rebuilding kind of um, com- compels you to do it. Com- it compels you to take that up op- that opportunity to design the right things for your museum, and 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 if that means. Um, acquiring new types of objects that aren't ob- objects in a tra- traditional sense. So, so be it. I mean, the Coop, I mean, the Cooper Hewitt had just just before it closed a show at the uh, United Nations, uh, the other ninety percent cities show, which 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 really was about des- uh, design in the developing world. And a lot of these solutions that were part of that exhibition were not physical objects. They 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 were rep- represented by videos and rep, rep, represented by stories of users in um, the developing world talking about the, the way they, in, for example, redesigned a currency system 
or does the designed a a a a communications and mapping um, system to uh, mm. deal 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 with electoral fraud? The, these are solution but uh, design as a series of solutions. And I think when when I came to Cooper uh, Cooper Hewitt, I spoke to Cynthia Smith, who curates the, that series of shows. And also to 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 Ellen Lupton, who's the other contemporary co- uh, curator, and 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 both Ellen and Cynthia expressed a a a, a hesitance or, or almost to putting things in the, the collection because because I think there's a feeling that once things go into the, the collection, they can't be used. They're not as flexible when when they're in the, the collection as when. They are on loan, or when it's a loan of a sample from a manu- from a manufacturer, it's a sort of sense that the museum collection is a mausoleum where you can't touch anything. Not not even the curatorial staff are allowed to do things with the objects once kind of they they end and enter the collection. So this sense that for soft software to be to be preserved. It does have to be used and touched and dealt uh, dealt with. So the sense that you could just put it into cold kind of storage was not going to work. So I think that you you know in part Aaron and I were trying to push at that. I think you know for be- better or better or worse, we'll see where it goes. But I think it's not you know there, there are other examples in museum collections that are like kind of this. I always talk talk about the the old violins, the powerhouse collection, or in many collections of music uh, music music collections in that they're 400 500 years old and the curator needs to get them played every, played played every year mm. by um, you know musicians in order to 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 preserve them because otherwise they they you know, deteriorate yet at powerhouse you know this sense of you couldn't turn on the old Synthesizers from 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 the nineteen seventies because they might explode and just destroy themselves. You know, it's like this ridiculous kind of conundrum we're in. So I think you know, driven a bit by um, that and a bit by Aaron's, you know, coming in from the out kind of side world, and I think coming in and going, come on, museum, you've got to deal deal with this world that we live in now. We've got to get on with it. This was a good way to sort of just start that that conversation, not not only with the rest of the the museum world and other curators and conservators. Both Aaron and I have been talking a lot to other digital preservation people in the last uh, the last in, in, I mean the last year or so, but also within the the Cooper Hewitt itself to really start us to think about where this has got to be for the museum to really be a contemporary design museum because otherwise it's sort of a sort of a sort of a pretend design museum that sort of <laughs> stops at about the year 2000 and and then just has the artifacts of you know furniture tableware yeah and i mean i think also you know particularly for an institution like the smithsonian i mean this is something i come back to a lot which is that it's not just you know if we can't figure out how to do this we're not you know, simply just a pretend design museum, which is unfortunate. Um, we're also sort of failing our mandate, which is, you know, particularly the Smithsonian, which is a public institution. Um, it, our job is to collect all of this stuff. And I think what you're starting to see, you know, Seb alluded to it um, with this idea that, you know, day to day, 
the professional approach to the inability to do stuff with anything that gets into our collection is to not put things on our collection. It's like, that's, that's a terrible, terrible way uh, to address the problem, never mind the present. And I think what you're starting to see with, you know, and this is a sort of larger meta conversation, but what you're starting to see with network databases and, and you know, just the sort of the growth of access is this idea that preservation without some kind of access isn't is sort of just self-indulgent i mean honestly um sometimes it's really hard to get things out you can't let everyone look at all the stuff because it is delicate fragile difficult to move all of those things and that's fine but there is also all this other stuff that we can do something Mm -hmm. with we can think about how to make it possible for people to see it yeah um and so that's large you know that's been a huge motivation behind the collections website which is to be able to create communal proofs around these objects um and it's very much a conceptual sort of project in many ways but you know at the same time right now what people have to go on is essentially blind faith we tell people we have two hundred thousand objects in the collection and they're just like uh okay i mean i I guess (laughs) but there's nothing there right right there's not they're not even photographed Mm -hmm. um so i think you know, when you start to get in, you know, software allows you to sort of actively poke at a lot of those issues. And it and it is amenable to sharing and distributing and trying new things with. Right. So, yeah, I, I, well, well, okay. well, uh, well, I mean, on, on that, too, I think what's also important to point out with Planetary was that we were very particular that we were not collecting it as a thing. Mm-hmm. We were collecting it as in um, um, as interaction design. We were not collecting it as a work, and you know I think Aaron can better explain what that means. But it is, I I always like liken it to almost acquiring a patent, an i an idea and a method, rather which 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 has a uh, particular form at the time you are, you acquire it, but that you're not acquiring it for its form, you're acquiring it for the idea and the intention but Aaron yeah, this is, is more articulate this is really, than i am about this this is really interesting walk us through the acquisition process you know how this happened um was your digital media office involved with the decision to actually bring this on i mean like that's us yeah <laughs> yeah yeah okay there's no one else <laughs> yeah cool um i mean the, the you know just some of the interesting mechanics um were you know one um the discussions between seven myself and the planetary people and trying to figure out what it would mean and and then also very much that idea of um open sourcing it Mm -hmm. um and that involved lots of conversations with the lawyers because that was a thing we'd never done before um and just making sure that everyone was comfortable and understood why it was important to do uh, presenting it to the curatorial review board. Um, and then, you know, some things like there is that sort of due diligence that the planetary people needed to do just to go sure to go through and make sure that, you know, and this is, this is, this is an important thing in sort of software archeology span and preservation, which is, um, 
a lot of this stuff isn't written with preservation in mind. And so people put passwords in there, people put some bit of data in there, and there is some degree of just cleaning it up. Um, and then it was transferring the GitHub repository. And then at that point, um, it was under our control. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, And then what? We got the extras. We got essentially, which is super interesting. I mean, we essentially got the curatorial file, and we released that as another GitHub repository. Um, and you know, I think Git is. I mean, this isn't this isn't the mechanics of it, but Git is sort of a, a, a boon to this kind of work because it is designed to preserve, you know, all of those all that change history, right? Um, and to make that available. And, you know, so in that way, it's very much like um, Wikipedia history pages or talk pages. But I think one of the things that's sort of really, really important is that the model still preserves a degree of authority and uh, preventatives in the sense that, you know, you can fork the copy of Planetary and you can go off and do whatever you want with it. And that's super important. Like, we don't usually have a mechanism that allows people to do that. But more importantly is that your changes aren't automatically reflected in my copy. Hmm. And like, you know, we don't, you know, museums are busy. Curators are busy. We don't have time to engage in edit wars with people all the time. Um, Can I ask on that GitHub question, is it concerning that we sort of have to relegate this responsibility to um, an external site? Um, the short answer is, uh, no. And the shorter answer is yes. Okay. Um, I desperately want GitHub to succeed. Um, someone needs and deserves to succeed, but at the same time, um, I have a feeling that, that, you know, GitHub will be like the nuclear winter of innocence for a lot of people. Um, they took a hundred million dollars in funding, um, and there may come a time when GitHub is not the happy, shiny place we all believe it to be. Right. That mm-hmm. said, the underlying fundamentals of Git are free and open. I mean, this is lots of people. Lots of people make the argument that Git is a larger contribution to society by Linus Torvalds than Linux itself. Um, and you know, the GitHub people, like they've done work that no one else has done and they deserve to, to reap that reward. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, Aaron, I reckon some of our listeners won't know what Git means. So Git is a, a version control system for software. Um, almost as soon as there have been, there were software developers, there was this idea of being able to take a snapshot of uh, a software, a code base at any moment mm-hmm. in order to be able to share it. And just as importantly, in order to be able to roll back changes, um, particularly with large, complex uh, projects, um, it's, <laughs> it's easy to get lost. It's easy to make mistakes. Um, and you need to be able to spread the workload across a variety of individuals and locations. So, um, you know, first there was RCS. It's all just a bunch. It's just alphabet soup. Um, revision control system. CVS stands for something. Then there was subversion, which just 
spooky and eerie. Um, and then there was Git, and I don't actually know why Git is called Git. Um, but, you know, Git was developed after the Linux project and very much in a respons- as a response to, you know, the challenges and the problems they faced building essentially an operating system uh, with a global community of developers. Um, and increasingly what you're seeing is more and more people looking at Git and thinking we could use it for other things like data. We could use it as a way to um, both do data exchange because you preserve that, that history change, but um, also just as a way to provide access because there are, there is this whole ecosystem. Sorry, I said ecosystem. Um, of tools that's been built up around it. Um, and that's, you know, the other place you see that lesson is the OpenStreetMap community, where they ended up, you know, in, in their efforts to build a map of the world, they built a number of software tools and platforms that, you know, just to make that possible. And it turns out that all of those pieces of software can be reused for all kinds of other stuff. That's kind of amazing. Yeah, that, go ahead, Suze. No, you go, Jeff. No, I was just, you know, in well, in your in your post on, on this subject, Suze, um, uh, in the comment thread, uh, I believe it was it was Matt Popke. He he, one his comment was pretty interesting. He, uh, I'll read it here. Um, you know, software is not a thing, but a codified collection of these processes. So by by open sourcing this code. Uh, is is Cooper Hewitt trying to enable a process rather than trying to preserve a thing? That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly what we're trying to do. Um, and I think what's what's interesting is that um, it also points to the reality now that software is made up of other soft software. So you know, Aaron alluded to um, this in all the legal pro- processes, but that you know it's almost like Planetary is a very is probably the most straight straightforward of the of the difficult thing that a uh, museum will have to deal deal with, in that it isn't it isn't itself networked, but it relies on a series of series of com- component parts. It is in itself a comp um, um, a complex system, um, but it's you know I think if we went further and started to acquire other types of software or system, then we would start to run into a lot of the issues that the, that the museum is not cap- capable. I, I don't think any museum is really capable of dealing, dealing, dealing with at the moment um, or a library for that matter. I mean, talking here about acquiring Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or any of the large-scale interactive systems that only work uh, world of kind of world of kind of warcraft i think when moma uh, moma acquired their video games they had some networked multi multiplayer games in uh, that first batch and they are really kept as kept as a series of gameplay videos mm. because there's no way for them to preserve the thing as a living ecosystem again using that word so well, yeah then, and i think yeah go. go ahead 
I was just going to say, given how complex these issues are, because I think you were starting to allude to this before, is this something museums have to be investing in? And if so, why? No, I don't think every, I don't think every museum does, but I think a designed museum does. I, you know, I think we were pretty clear that this is a designed museum challenge. It's also a tech, technology museum challenge. So certainly, you know, museums like um, the Powerhouse were certainly starting to look at this. Uh, video game rep- repositories are starting to look at um, but this. Computing museums are starting to look at this. Archival collections are starting to look at this as archives are beginning to be de- delivered to them in these other forms. Um, you know, it is, you know, I think this, um, this historical museums have to deal with this as history catches up with the present. Um, museums of art, it's up to them whether they do, whether they do or not. But I think mm. increasingly contemporary works uh, ref, re, use and reflect the net the network culture we live in, and so you you will start to see even relatively simple contemporary works relying on complex infrastructures behind them that are not part of the work itself. Yeah, like, and I think it's worth. I mean, to be honest, art museums already have some experience doing this. Yeah. Um, and and that is Saul Lewitt, um, mm. whose work I can't stand, but I you know I recognize the parallels, um, and you know I think the the other the other group or the other project that is, that's absolutely worth calling out right now is is all the work that Archive Team and the Internet Archive is doing around yeah. the the emulation software, yeah. Um, yeah. and they have basically any operating system up to the early nineties running in your browser. And that's mm-hmm. not a, that's not a, a, a solution that will adapt to all space and time, but it's pretty great for right now. And you start to see, you start to see people building out that, you know, the know-how uh, and the experience of translating one system from the past to run on another system in the present. Which is the sort of which is what we were trying to do with planetary, which is why we keep saying like we would love it if someone would make this run, you know, in a web browser using WebGL or whatever that technology is, um, because you know as much as it is a process, it is also that question of trying to preserve the experience. I mean, we could have just taken some screenshots and written some uh, breathless prose about them, but. You know, you can apply that rule to basically um, almost any museum collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then yeah. you have to ask a lot of serious questions like, why exactly are we keeping this stuff in buildings? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because just uh, in July before this was announced, I opened it was in Melbourne talking at the um, uh, Circus Archive, the Living Archive project that Cir- Circus Oz is doing. And what's interesting about that is here we have a performing arts um, company that is making 30 years of per- performances and uh, rehearsals available, uh, not all to the public, but within, uh, but, but on um, a closed, um, but, um, a, um, a closed net, net, network initially as a way of 
being a, able to um, pres- preserve so so that future performers can learn the old uh, acts and mm. the old tricks, mm-hmm. and that they they can also do an, do analysis of those so that they can learn about when a joke really worked and those sorts of uh, things, or when a um, magic a, a magic trick was particularly effective or when it was perfected, that sort of thing, as well as it being this sort of archive uh, for, the, for the public where the public is encouraged to come in and talk, talk about their memories of those, um, the, those performances. This is a circus that travels through a lot of regional communities and, and, and really has a lot of resonance in those, those cities as well as in Melbourne too. And I think what's interesting about um, Cirque, Cirque Circus Oz and that sort of capturing in the performing arts world of really what the performing arts has been very reluctant to uh, digitise, for want of a better word, that sort of essence of experience, that live feeling, um, is actually starting to operate much in the way a, muse- um, a museum ob- object does in that it's there to trigger memory. Mm. They're there to tell stories both of the company's past and performing uh, and performing practices and the p- performers involved, but also about its resonance within particular communities at particular times. And so I think you're starting to see this sort of bleed but between, you know, not only as, you know, we all ca- carry on about the collapsing borders between archives, lib- lib- libraries and museums, but also now we're starting to see the, the, the performing arts become really engaged with archival pra- practice in this sort of sense of cap- capturing experience and rep- re- representing experience. And, and, you know, I think, it's, and I think there's a lot that museums, um, museums also try, try, to, try to do this, and you see this in virtual, virtual rec- rec- reconstruction work, you see this in, um, in immersive environment work, you see this in all sorts of exhibit meth- methodologies. So I, I, I think it, it's kind of to- totally log- logical for museums to begin to think about its collection in that sense of how much more of the the orb- orbiting other things can be pulled in when an, ob- when an object is collected. So with planetary, one of the other side effects of this has been the, the discussion within the museum's curatorial staff amongst, well, if... We ask a graphic designer for their work, should we also acquire the Photoshop files or Illustrator files? Hmm. If we ask one of the architectural firms for, for their work, should we also acquire the CAD files? Should we acquire the ver- could, could, could we acquire the versioned CAD files or the versioned illust- um, Illustrator files or Photoshop files? So it's really, really... So it's been really re- rewarding to hear those sort of discussions taking a place across the museum now. And so this sort of sense of this this interactive piece uh, almost acting as a trigger to help people think about what perhaps what else could become part of the more traditional parts of the, the museum's collection. Yeah, super fascinating. Um, you know... Seb and Aaron, I, I don't think anyone listening to this show 
can deny that you guys are doing some of the most interesting and progressive work, you know, in this area of art and design and technology and, and, and kind of stepping back and looking at the Cooper Hewitt's, um, you know, working process, you know, looking in from the outside, it almost seems as though you guys have created kind of a tech startup or maybe even a department operating under a, a tech startup ethos within the institution. Does that analogy hold water, you know, and if so, can you guys no. speak speak to that approach? No. Okay. Good. <laughs> no, we don't have uh, we don't have uh, foosball. We don't uh, we don't have free free lunches. Uh, we barely barely have working Wi Fi. Uh, it's definitely very very far from the startup experience. In fact, m- my team we all were based at Google for a, for a week and a half during the, during the, the government. Shut, shut down and it became very it became very stark how tra- traditional the off the office space we live in really is but i do think within the within the within the museum world we've been granted a, f- a pretty wide degree of freedom yeah. and i think uh we've also been given an opportunity with this rebuild to push on a lot of things that traditionally are not pushed on Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also that the team works really well, well together, and um, we, we, it's a very um, we bounce lots of lots of ideas around. And I think um, when those ideas get bounced around, there's time and space, although it doesn't feel feel like it at times, for them actually to go places, the things to to be built. And I think you know, I think Aaron when he started was saying that you know. I remember him saying that it was really re- refreshing to 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 be able to make things live, and that 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 sense, perhaps, of what happens in the startup world of actually deliver making running code, is something that has traditionally been a little bit rare in the museum tech world. That everything historically would go through endless committees and demos, and then get all the in. The interesting bits shaved, shaved, shaved off the edges, and you know. But for us, it's been very, very much uh, our internal philosophy, at least within my teams, has been about let's just get things done. Um, and I think that's that's a luxury that um, is of the moment, I guess. You know, and it's not a luxury that uh, sticks around necessarily forever. Uh, and it's one I think that that you know the, that that. You know, sort of Bill Mogridge's uh, initial uh, push around this—it's um, kind of—it's kind of resonated, and we've tried to keep um, keep that going. And uh, but it's also, I think, un- understanding that if if people are going to stay in the museum field, that they need to be able to do do thing and. Mm-hmm. Um, technologists or people with technology interests are kind of are driven by that a lot. But but I would say that, you know, none of us in in our team are, are computer scientists. None of us were trained as computer scientists. You know, I think Aaron's an artist. Mike is a, a photographer. I'm like a social science, social, social work person, social policy person. So... You know, um, that's uh, that's sort of we're driven by diff- different things, but um, yeah. Anyway, rambling. Yeah, I guess I would just I would I would add that um, you know that that question of how like once a project 
sort of achieves velocity or starts to achieve an arc, then um, then there is often that tension or that there seems to be that need to create a master narrative around it. Um, and then suddenly everyone becomes very sensitive about what you say about it, how you talk about things, what mm. becomes possible. Um, the dreaded R word starts getting trotted out and you have a roadmap. Um, and I, you know, I think it's important to point out that, that this is a problem that exists everywhere and it absolutely exists in startups. Um, you know, in a startup, you know, the, this, this sort of idea, and it's been romanticized um, almost to the point of absurdity in the last few years, uh, is you have a small group of people who have limited means and resources at their disposal, um, but they have something they're trying to get done. And so it's really about, you know, there is an end goal. Everyone knows what it is. And how you get there isn't really super important. I mean, that's overstating it, but... Um, you know, it is that belief that things are possible. Right, and um, the capacity to have people sort of working to the same particular ends. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I mean, I, everyone knows this by now. Like, I'm, I'm scarred by Flickr, um, and that, so I see everything through that lens. But I remember when, you know, at one point there was this, you know, we, there was this, narrative that was going around inside the team that, well, things had gotten so big now that we needed to do it differently, or we needed to adapt to a different way of doing it. And I was really frankly offended by it, because what that suggested was that um, we had gotten there as a fluke. And I was like, you know, we worked really, really hard. Mm. And uh, we may have had fart machines, and uh, we may have, you know, basically acted like children, but we were pretty serious about it. Um, and we, we demonstrated that it was possible. And I think that was, you know, that was exciting and good. And it was like, okay, what now? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, uh, there's a lot of, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, I think within the Cooper Hewitt, particularly as part of a government museum, uh, the Smithsonian, and a lot of work pra- practices that flow from that, um, we've been pushing pretty hard to make sure that the worst parts of bureaucracy impinge least upon the day- day-to-day stuff. Um, and that, I think, is, again, you know, I think that, that opportunity of having the building shut down and this moment of having to build something new almost does carry that mission forward. It's almost like this is what we're all doing. This is why we're doing it. This is where we're going. And let's try to just not let the paperwork get in the way sort of thing. And I think that that, that, that perhaps is the only thing that that's akin to a startup model where there is that clarity of what you where you're trying to get to, and that it isn't known, and and that the way to get there isn't really known. Um, I I would say, though, that, you know, I think there are ways to open a a museum that are known, and I think, you know, we've been pretty keen in my team to try to avoid opening the same museum that everyone else does. 
mm. and to miss that moment of opening a different sort of uh, museum, a museum that we might actually want to visit ourselves. Um, whether we get there, who knows? I think, you know, I think it's, t- it's, it's, it's a sense that we, we do because we don't know. And because most startups fail terribly, um, most don't get anywhere near the press that anyone expects and most can't, af- can't afford the free lunches after a little while. Uh, you know, we, we, we also know that we, we, we've got to be responsible and not kind of fritter away the, what will be millions and millions of dollars. I mean, you know, the renovation itself, uh, the, the restoration when I started, I think it just closed at $54 million. And I expect that, that, you know, by, by the time we reopen, we will have had many more millions donated and, and, and that, you know, that's a lot of money and, and that, that money has to be spent well and it's also got to be spent on some, something that's not like all the other New York museums. Right. Now, the two of you, this has been absolutely fascinating, but I think we need to, to wrap it up. You're both really interesting on the internet as well as via podcast. So if people are interested in following you, which I would highly recommend uh, if you don't already follow these two, where can they find you? Aaron, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I have a weblog that's been running for a little over a decade now um, at aaronland.info. And this is Aaronland on the Twitters. Right. And Seb, what about you? Uh, probably best, uh, Seb, Sebchan dot, dot com and Sebchan on Twitter. Seb, Sebchan dot, dot, dot com points to wherever I am. So, um, that's helpful at times. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, both of you, thank you so, so much for coming on and being punked by Museo Punks. <laughs> Dale Cronkite is head of conservation at the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum. He has been conservator there since its inception in 1997. Prior to coming to work for the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum, Dale was senior conservator for the state of New Mexico for seven years and was senior conservator at the Regional Conservation Center, Bishop Museum, Honolulu, from 1985 to 1991. He has also served as an instructor and an author for the Getty Conservation Institute since 1985. Dale, thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Museo Punks. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So, um, uh, you know, for, for the Museo Punks that listen, they may have a good kind of clear idea of what conservation is. Um, but for those who may not, you know, tell us a little bit about your day-to-day what is conservation and 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 how do you interface with it that's a great question i mean i'm not sure day-to-day i have a really clear idea because like most of our museum professions um it is evolving constantly but but fundamentally um i do believe that it's um most accurate to say that conservators are involved in the process of managing change um, I think that's the clearest understanding of what we do. Um, we are trying to determine the rates of change, of damage, and of deterioration of the objects we care for. 
And we do that by various analytical methods, various imaging methods, uh, and of course, just physically, tangibly measuring and looking at the object um, and trying to determine the rate at which something is changing. Basically, objects will tell us a lot about their own preservation. Uh, if they are changing slowly, uh, then they're essentially telling us they're able to withstand the conditions we're putting them in. And when they start to change more rapidly, they're telling us that we are exceeding their stress proportional limits in some way, and they're falling apart. So at that point, conservators try and understand that process and that mechanism, and then we try and engineer materials and practices that will help hold that object in a more stable state, slow the rate of deterioration. So there's analysis going in, there's um, imaging going in, there's tangible physical observation, and there's ways of documenting that process. Unless we document the rates of change, then we'll never know whether, as conservators, we really slow the rate of deterioration down. So do documentation is a big part of it, too. This is... Actually, incredibly fascinating. I think when I think about conservation, I don't imagine that degree of nuance in, in sort of what, what you're talking about there because there's huge amounts of questions then you're, you're asking if you're talking about analysis and looking at sort of analysis over a period of time. That's a really significant um, type of questioning and sort of problem solving that you're trying to do. Yeah. So I guess if you're trying to, say, conserve a painting – where do you start then? I mean, what kinds of questions do you ask yourself or ask of the painting? I think, you know, with a painting or any object, I think the conservator's first task is to try and unpack all the tangible evidence that's there. Um, so it's obviously what materials are there um, and how they're interacting, what structures then the artist um, used to assemble those materials, um, what has um, happened to those materials and structures over time, not only how they've, they've deteriorated or how they've been damaged, but um, often how, how uh, other people in other settings have interacted with it. So, for example, you know, if a painting's been displayed in a, in a church setting for years, then it may very likely have soiling or soot or candle soot um, adhere to it that are part of that setting and um, sort of record, honestly record that, that part of its history. Um, if uh, we had one painting where, uh, while it was in private hands, um, it was a sort of a landscape with a large sky into it, and, and the owner's grandson literally sort of flew a model airplane into it as if he was throwing the model airplane into a sky. And the net effect was that there was, you know, a huge crack in that series of cracks, um, sigmoid or, or concentric circle cracks in that painting. And, you know, so we have to sort of unpack that story and understand where those things came from and what part of the history of the object um, it relates to. And then we work with the curators who really want to use that object to tell one or more particular stories to determine how they want us to alter that evidence. So remove the soot or flatten those cracks so that that particular part of the story is somehow um, diminished or obscured and, and the part of the story they want to tell the artist's original materials, the way it, it 
appeared when it left the artist's hand, you know, that those characteristics come to the fore. Mm-hmm. Um, what role do digital technologies play in uncovering the stories that you just mentioned or helping curators, in a sense, become these storytellers that you're talking about? Well, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a platform that's just beginning to, to form and that people are starting just trying to climb onto. Um, for me as a conservator, the, uh, dig- the impact of digital technologies is huge because uh, instruments that used to literally take up uh, a room 10 by 12 feet, um, I can now hold in my hand um, because not only has the the mechanical part of the instrumentation been shrunk down as a result of technology, but of course it's all dependent on microprocessors, right? Um, all the signals and all the commands and all the information is just now binary. It's an on and off switch. Those binary signals get translated into code, and the code ends up giving us the information we used to get from an analog, you know, sort of Geiger counter kind of thing. And um, so I can now collect data about a work of art, its materials, the pigments, um, its uh, binders, um, more rapidly than I ever could. And the, and the rate of precision now is incredible. So we use a technique, imaging technique now called reflectance transformation imaging um, or another three-technique called photogrammetry. And those two things not only sort of give us the three-dimensional texture of a canvas of an artist, but the, the normal reflection vectors that we extract out of that data, and we couldn't do it unless it really was solid numerical data, um, tell us the exact angle of the warp going over the weft. What that hmm. means is that we are now able to not only identify the canvas um, as a canvas that the artist used and when the artist used it, but, but we even have the ability to recognize a single bolt of cloth, that is a, a, a type of canvas off the same bolt, um, and help that to identify um, sort of chronological sequences that the um, artist may have used when unrolling that canvas and stretching it onto a, uh, a stretcher. So um, the amount of information we can give curators now, rapidly and inexpensively, to help them figure out what the stories are, is exponentially larger than it was just five years ago. Wow. So really, conservation is beginning to be transformed by digital technologies in that case. Yeah, absolutely correct. I mean, we are, we are fundamentally transformed. The, I, was, I was having a discussion just today with our digital archivist um, in that most of the files I create now, most of the documentation I create, the images I create, um, the specter I create, you know, they're computational images. They don't exist in the real world. I couldn't print that out and put an analog or hard copy into a file cabinet because they don't exist. You, you can't print out that multidimensional space. So we, we've really um, stepped into a brand new frontier where we are actively authoring digital assets, digital files, um, almost exclusively that have no analog equivalent. Mm. And so the preservation of those digital files is of great concern. Wow. Um, so today we're, you know, we're, we wanted to speak with you about born digital objects. Um, you know, objects that, um, really so far have no kind of archival process or medium. Right. Um, right. 
I think that a good place to start out might be to talk about the parallels between tangible objects and born digital objects. Like, what can what can we kind of say about both of those that that may kind of be par- on a, along a parallel path? Yeah, um, I mean, referencing Sue's blog post and and the Cooper Hewitt's acquisition of. Um, the software planetary is, you know, is a great point of departure because um, both Sue's and Seb and Aaron um, in each of those posts sort of pose this, this problem clearly. And that is that um, at least on the face of it, we don't have this, this tangible object um, in front of us. We, we, we could say that we have, um, uh, some binary or ASCII code that we can uh, print out and save, um, and that's sort of a representation of the object. But in fact, what what this code is um, is a is a process. It it is a way of of uh, taking data and visualizing data. And again, this so this is a born digital object. It has no analog equivalent. Um, you can take screen snapshots of it at various stages, but that really isn't capturing what it does. Um, and um, so it, at first it appears as, as a completely new problem. Um, I would suggest that it's not a completely new problem mm-hmm. for conservators and for preservation, but that um, but its preservation is, is best enacted in brand new ways. So um, any conservator, when, the, when we get an object on, on our table, um, it, it's almost like getting the binary code or the ASCII code or, or even a screen video of planetary running on an iPad. Okay? I mean, it's, it is a point in time. It is a state of that object that we have on the table, and, and we can talk about it as if it's an ancient Chinese bronze or, or a Greek ceramic. Um, but within that object, within those corrosion layers, within the, underneath the soiling that might be there, um, there's other kinds of information, um, hopefully, um, that we can begin to unpack and begin to make connections. So when we study, for example, when a conservator studies how an object is made, um, the materials, when we identify and analyze the materials and the structures, um, we also uncover like modifications to the object. So frequently we'll uncover how an object was repaired um, when, it, when it broke in use or how it was modified when the use of the demands on the object really changed and somebody had to stop using, for example, uh, uh, a hoe used for farming corn in the southwest into a a plow that would be pulled by a horse or an oxen. So there are these modifications that occur, and then the thing breaks and it gets repaired. Um, it might get um, it, an object may have been painted originally red, and then tastes and conventions change, and it, then it gets repainted green, and then maybe it changes to blue. And different users um, fancy different colors or um, uh, different appearances. And then when, when the object is abandoned or discarded because other technologies come into use, um, you know, it undergoes deterioration from that abandonment. Um, 
It may sit in the attic and collect dust and get fly specks all over it, or it may literally get dumped into the ground, right, in an archaeological setting and get buried. But all those contexts all add certain characteristic to the object. And then if it gets collected, then, you know, uh, people like me and restorers and collectors all have their own conventions on how the objects should look. So they preferentially remove some corrosion layers because they're ugly and preserve other corrosion layers because they're beautiful. Right? Um, so all of this is to describe what I think is a parallel process to born digital objects, and that is that you know initially they are an idea in somebody's imagination. Um, somebody says, um, I can fabricate this thing, and it will um, facilitate my life or my uh, the, some function I want to achieve or give meaning to it in some way um, if I can just if, if I can just manifest this this idea so it starts out as imagination and then there, there are several iterations where somebody starts to write it out starts to build it doesn't quite work has to change it so we have different versions of it right and then it runs and somebody else says wow you know this is cool but what this could really do that I think would be interesting is if it could do this. So it goes through another iteration, and then the technology f runs out of out of favor, or it's supplanted by a technology that's even more astonishing, and sits on the shelf, and it and it's no longer supported, as you know we say when a piece of software is no longer supported by the operating system, and it and it sort of falls away. So the the digital pathway is not so um, different than um, the tangible object pathway. Um, if, but if those iterations aren't saved, for example, in some sort of, of uh, software version control, like GitHub, for example, then, then those, and, and if the authors don't keep those versions, um, then that information um, could be lost because it, it doesn't exist just in the code as you would receive it when it was, when it was downloaded. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really interesting hearing you talk about those parallels between the two in terms of process, because I think when I think of conservation, I definitely think of it as being about arresting change. But at the very start, you were talking about it being about managing change. But with planetary, in some ways, it seems like the change sort of because it's open source will be unmanaged, but tracked change. Uh -huh. Does that seem accurate to you? Yeah, I think I think it is I think it is accurate and and sort of within that accuracy um is the exciting part um mm. because one of the things that Seb and Aaron wrote um in in their um blog post about the acquisition was that there was one line that just stuck with me that that brought it all together um and that is that the distinction between preservation and access is increasingly blurred. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense to you all. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. uh, the fundamental point here is, and, and what I think Seb and Aaron have really um, opened the box on, is that through GitHub and allowing this completely unstructured approach to um, seeing the source code, manipulating it, perhaps modifying it for use in other operating systems, finding other uses for it. Um, 
What they've done is that they have allowed, they've essentially um, encouraged people to to hack it yeah. and and keep mm-hmm. it um, keep it alive, um, but also sort of keep the iterations going and keep the enthusiasm for what the object does alive. And um, and I th- I think what they have done is they have foreshadowed. Um, preservation of tangible objects in a very important way. Mm-hmm. I think that ultimately what conservation labs uh, and studios like mine will ultimately be doing is that we will be um, giving greater and greater unstructured public access to what we do so that people will be able to participate in it, understand, ask questions, um, literally make suggestions um, and and participate, and in so doing, um, in, in, in increasing access, we thus sort of strengthen the relevancy of preservation in the museum context. Why are we doing this preservation? Well, because it's really important, because it's meaningful. It's meaningful to all of us who are sort of walking the planet right now. Um, you, you'll hear many conservators talk about how fascinated people are whenever they get a tour of the lab or they get digital access to the behind the scenes, you know, the sort of CSI of museum <laughs> collections, right? Mm. Um, and and that part of that is that people sort of know that that goes on, but they don't know how, and they're quite simply curious. Yeah. Uh, and all we're really doing is we're, we're leveraging that curiosity um, and inviting people to make preservation relevant within their own lives and their own families, um, even if it's in, at an entertainment level, yeah. um, it's still relevant. And I think that is, that is the future to keeping museums and preservation going. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So how, you know, thinking about born digital objects like this, um, how important, in your opinion, is it to, to start the conservation process uh, as close as possible to the time of acquisition? Because had Cooper Hewitt acquired Planetary, and um, they'd done nothing with it for, say, a decade. Good luck finding some device to fire this thing up, right? I mean, right. It, it, what are your thoughts on that? That's a great question, Jeffrey. Um, wow. I mean, it's critical, obviously, yeah. because, um, because right now, planetary is sort of fresh in everybody's memory. Yeah. And uh, and it's sort of been refreshed by this process of um, making the source code available. And, um, you know, I have checked it. And, and um, uh, while people are definitely looking at it and opening up the code, you know, nobody's written anything new hmm. yet. Um, so it's, so the answer to the question in, in some ways is, you know, well, don't know. Yeah. You know, right. Can't wait to sort of find out what the trajectory of this really is. Um, in many ways, I think when you, you know, if you take, for example, Museum of Modern Arts series of blog posts recently on the conservation of a group of Jackson Pollock paintings, mm-hmm. um, whenever that kind of thing happens, it, it refreshes and it sparks curiosity anew about an object that perhaps people have not been thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so in some ways, my guess is that um, bringing something that people have loved but have forgotten about 
and, and allowing a platform for that interest and curiosity to be re-engaged in a new way may actually be more exciting than doing it sort of right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but probably my, my intuition, which is not always right by any means, <laughs> is that it, when we're talking about a digital object, um, perhaps time is even more critical because the life cycle is, is so short, the attention span is so short, um, the, the astonishment factor plays such a huge role in whether people feel something is important or not, that wow factor, that if we wait too long after that wow factor has been sort of supplanted by something more wowish, uh, mm. nobody's going to be interested in it. Right. Yeah. And, and um, you know, GitHub really is a, a platform of experts. Um, you know, it, it, it is visited uh, and interacted with by people who are genuinely skilled at writing and recognizing elegant code. Um, they are the ones who can really keep this thing alive. So you've got to get their attention. See, Dale, now that's the perfect segue to what I wanted to ask, which is about skills and expertise, because I want to know what conservators who are going to have to deal with born digital objects, whether they need different kinds of skills. I mean, you obviously need to ask the same sorts of questions of born digital and sort of actual physical artifacts, but you probably need different kinds of skills. What, what expertise do you think that conservators need now? And do there need to be multiple types of conservators? Yeah, uh, you're right. I mean, I think you're right. There, there do have to be multiple types of conservators, sort of as there always has been mm. specialties um, where, where people did a deep dive into just uh, painted uh, wall paintings or just painted uh, easel paintings or just ceramics or just glass. Uh, Certainly, uh, the preservation of those materials is enhanced by those deep dives, by that level of of knowledge and skill with those materials. So I think you're absolutely right. For this to work, we really need conservators who um, who understand uh, binary and um, various coding languages and are comfortable sort of working in that environment and and writing scripts to do preservation. I mean, preservation at this point may be as simple as writing Python scripts to uh, extract code, uh, turn it into text files um, so that it, it can then be explored and saved. But But that really is what has to be done. And, um, yeah, I don't know of any of the conservation programs that um, are essentially um, teaching conservation with a parallel track in computer engineering, right? Yeah. Software mm. engineering. I, that isn't happening right now. Would you, would you consider that an area of conservation that might need to be museopunked? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That would be, be, be a great way to do it. I mean, because there are people like me out there who actually find it sort of fascinating to uh, find code fascinating yeah. and find um, uh, writing Python scripts that you can actually do things with code fascinating. Um, so, I mean, I, I think um, conservators tend to be polymaths to begin with. People who are drawn to the profession tend to be polymaths. Yeah. Um, they tend to be people who are really interested in 
in art, in in physical sciences, in materials, in chemistry, um, and 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 my my idea, my uh, intuition again is that. Um, there are probably a bunch of them out there that also are interested in codes. I don't think these people are going to be hard to find. Cool. We, we just need to sort of formalize this in some way. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, Dale, this is a, a fascinating area, of, um, you know, even as a, a kind of a technologist at a museum to look at the implications on conservation is, is amazing. I, I really think uh, it's an area that is uh is really exciting um so Mm -hmm. thank you so much for taking the time to uh chat with us today uh for for anyone not already following you on twitter shame on you but where can they find you (laughs) oh i'm I'm pretty easy so i'm uh on twitter i'm at gok conservator like george o'keefe conservator is just gok conservator cool um thanks so much and uh look forward to hopefully seeing you at mcn you will absolutely see me at MCN, and you're welcome, Jeffrey. Thanks for asking me. It's a lot of fun. Okay, Suze, some pretty, um, pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to have to go and listen to this episode myself a couple more times to just wrap my head around what we've heard today. Yeah, um, you know this 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 concept of of preserving or conserving uh born digital objects via open sourcing is is kind of making my brain hurt but it's uh it's something that i think is is really uh it's going to change the change what we do as museum uh people yeah, definitely. I mean, I think this point that what we're trying to do is conserve and preserve something that's alive is super interesting. Yeah. So I hope uh, listeners enjoyed all this stuff we talked about. Um, I will uh, will drop uh, links to some of the more pertinent things in the show notes uh, for this episode, which can be found at museopunks.org slash zero eight. Um, Suze, where can people go to uh, to to find you online? Well, to find me online, they can find me via Twitter at shineslike. Uh, in my blog, I am museumgeek.wordpress.com. And if they happen to be at the Museum Computer Network Conference, you and I will be there in person uh, from the 20th to the 23rd of November. And we will also be rocking out at karaoke, but we're doing some live sessions, which will be super, super exciting. But on the internet, in case they can't get there, where can they find you, Jeff? Uh, you can find me at, uh, jeez, I was just about to say museopunks.org. You can find me at museopunks.org, <laughs> but you can also find me at staticmade.com or at staticmade on Twitter. Um, and I'm really looking forward to the, the MCN sessions. Um, hopefully, uh, by the time this episode is, uh, up and online, uh, there will be a place uh, on our website where we have all the information about, um, the sessions we're doing, the people we're going to, the guests we're going to have, um, all the good stuff. So um, there will be a link in the show notes to this episode to all that information. So if you're in Montreal and you're at MCN, uh, come see us, come sing karaoke with us. I uh, hear Suze is going to do Bon Jovi. Ah, that would be amazing. I can't promise that that's my song choice, but I'm definitely going to find something great. Yeah, come up and say hi if you are in Montreal. And if you're not, drop us a line over the internet and let us know what interesting projects you're interested in all things progressive museums 
All right, that's it for this episode. We'll see and hear everybody next time. Ciao, ciao.